Hello and welcome back to the Institute of International Finance's podcast series, All About the Green, where we speak with topic experts on the exciting and ever-changing world of sustainable finance. I'm your host, Tim Adams, President and CEO of the IIF. This podcast episode comes from the webinar series that we launched earlier this year entitled Common Sense Conversations on Climate Change, developed to explore and highlight a wide array of topics related to climate change, with a special focus on the effects on the financial services industry and the broader economy. These dialogues are critical given the unique capability of financial institutions and markets to effectively identify risks and fund solutions. Though the topics vary, each episode takes a deep dive into ways to encourage pragmatic, common sense solutions to facilitate the transition to a low carbon and ultimately a net zero carbon economy. Today, we're honored to have uh, Hank Paulson, the 74th Secretary of the Treasury, former chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, current chairman of the Paulson Institute, which does outstanding work on looking at sustainable economic growth, uh, cleaner environment, especially focused on US and China. And he's also serving as the executive chairman of TPG's global fund entitled Rise Climate. He's also an avid environmentalist, a naturalist, and a long-term advocate for policy action on climate and the loss of biodiversity. Hank, it's so good to see you. Thank you for joining us here today. Tim, it's great to see you again and good to be with you. Hank, you were talking about climate change before anyone else I know. 20 years ago, you were on top of this issue uh, and you were a thought leader then, you were a thought leader now. How did you get started in climate and, and why Why now? You could easily be fishing uh, and spending time in, in, uh, in the outdoors. Why then? Why now? Well, Tim, actually, I got started really through the love of the outdoors and through uh, conservation. I, I only began to focus on climate when I saw what, what it was doing to, to the natural beauty I love. When I saw what was happening to coral reefs as they were being bleached, you know, diving in various spots around the world, looked at a number of disturbing events that got me to focus on it. But it was really when I came to Washington and uh, served as Treasury Secretary that I really thought I needed to take a deeper look at the science. And everything I found was very disturbing. You and I both worked for George W. Bush. And uh, I saw him do some things that were, you know, I, I think uh, very positive during his second term, convening this major economies initiative to focus on reducing uh, uh, emissions, you know, looked at some of the other things he did. But it was then that I started looking at the science and looking at the economic impact of climate. The more I looked, the more concerned I became, because it, to me, is clearly the most certain, inevitable, really a major risk that we face in the world today. As I unpack it, I look at it in a couple of different ways. First, we need to think about and deal with the climate change that's happening today. Extreme weather shocks that we're seeing, you know, are inevitably going to increase and they're going to increase no matter what we do, because we're going to see those shocks based upon the carbon, which is already in the atmosphere. So that means we have a very big job ahead of us to make our economy more resilient, to adapt so that we can reduce the economic impact of these weather shocks and that we can provide social stability. That's very significant in and of itself. And then, of course, 
what most of the world is focused on, which is mitigation. How do we avoid the very worst climate outcomes by taking steps to accelerate development of the new technologies that are necessary and the rapid deployment of the technologies we already have to decarbonize an energy system that uh, globally that is 80% reliant on carbon-based fuels. So, you know, the idea of rewiring in our global economic system is a major, major challenge. And the implications here for our planet are, are huge. This is something it didn't spring upon me immediately. It, it evolved through a concern about the environment and a love of the outdoors. And, and of course, I now am also very focused on what's happening to, to biodiversity loss as we're, we're seeing our natural capital being destroyed. So there's a there's a vicious cycle in terms of climate change, you know, accelerating the loss of biodiversity and the rapid extinction of species. And of course, as the biodiversity goes, we're seeing that impact uh, uh, climate change and accelerate climate change. You know, Hank, we've seen leadership from many political capitals around the world. Obviously, the Paris Accord was a huge step forward. It's good to see President Biden is taking the United States back into that accord. But let's talk about the private sector, the corporate sector, and specifically the industry that I represent, the financial service industry. What is the role of the private sector uh, generally and, and the financial sector specifically? Well, Tim, they've got a big, big role to play. Now, obviously, government policy is going to be the biggest determinant of whether we're going to meet this challenge. And it's the most difficult challenge is getting the political system to work. But the private sector has got a huge role to play. And let me just tick off some things. First of all, I see venture capital playing a big role in developing the technologies that we're going to need in the later stages of this climate change battle. The technologies that, that aren't now commercially viable. But this is very, very important. And I see uh, the venture capital coming either right behind the government R&D or right alongside the government R&D. So very important because we're not just focusing on renewable energy. We're going to need to figure out how to make things like steel and cement and fuels that emit much, much less carbon. So a big challenge and venture capital has got a role to play there, a significant role. Then I see a very big role and a very big role in finance for rolling out in scale the commercially viable technologies that exist today. And that's going to be a race to time to get those out and get them out very, very quickly. In many ways, that's going to be the most important thing for the next 10 years, because if we don't win this battle and we don't dramatically uh, reduce the carbon emissions in the next 10 years, the outcomes that we see are, are going to be very un unattractive. And so, for instance, that's why, you know, I've spent, Tim, my time since leaving government, focused on the government policy and advocating it through four different NGOs, which I started, all of which worked with business. And I've either chaired or co-chaired these uh, NGOs. Combating climate change has been an important part of each one of those. But the reason that I've decided to return to my roots in finance and combine my policy work with a big pool of capital is I see that there's a void. There's a void between 
investment that's taking place right now in contracted renewables and the venture investment, because there's a need to accelerate this deployment of uh, viable technologies and to build these companies that are going to make a difference here while generating significant returns for investors and reducing carbon emissions. Because, you know, as I see the problem, and I think most people agree with this, that it's going to take massive amounts of capital to rewire the society, massive amounts. This is going to be a hugely important industrial transformation. And, uh, you know, that capital is not going to come on a concessionary basis in the size we need. So there's a big, big need to demonstrate that investing in climate technologies and building these companies can be very profitable because that will help bring more capital and because we're going to need the capital to, uh, to get the results. Part of the reason why I decided to become the executive chairman of the TPG Rise Climate Fund is a number of things that happened today. And I think it's worth talking about these because these are going to be the things that are driving the private sector. And in no particular order, because all of these are important. First of all, there has been a dramatic reduction in the cost of renewables, wind and solar. In economies around the world responsible for 73% of the global GDP, these technologies are now cheaper than any source of electricity. And they're dropping very, very quickly. Secondly, there's a huge push from consumers. I I call that the Greta effect. And and then, of course, you're seeing financial institutions, and this is something, Tim, you're obviously following very quickly. I call it the Larry Fink effect. Investors demanding that companies take action. And I've been talking to CEOs all around the world And I've seen a big change. If I talked with someone running many major companies three or four years ago and you asked them about climate change, they would say, yes, this is very important. Talk about what their sustainability officer is doing and then change the topic and want to talk about something else, what's going on in China or whatever. Today, they're focused big time because they understand that markets move and look to the future. We saw this with cellular, right? When the volumes and the earnings and the sales were with the yellow pages or landlines, the markets moved to cellular companies. And so if you're at General Motors now and you look at a Tesla trading at eight times your market cap, you may believe that some of that is a bubble. I mean, some of it almost certainly is. But also it's the markets looking to the future. So what we see is CEOs moving and you're seeing all kinds of climate pledges and net zero pledges. And we're also watching carbon markets develop, mandatory voluntary markets in California, New England, far ahead of that in in Europe and China getting ready to to roll out uh, carbon markets. And when they do, it'll be by far the biggest carbon market in the world. So all of these things mean that there's a great opportunity to do that now for the private sector. And so again, I see a big role to be played by the private sector as they go through this industrial transformation. You're absolutely right about the retail money. I just saw a Morningstar report yesterday. We now have over 400 funds globally focused on some form of climate or environmental factors. 
and the amount of money flowing into the ETFs or those funds is already eclipsed this year while we saw a total for last year, three or four X previously. So there's a tremendous wave of capital in search of returns, obviously, but also promoting good outcomes. What do you see as Treasury's role? What are the opportunities and maybe even the limitations of that position in terms of advancing this agenda? There's all kinds of money in the public markets looking to express themselves in climate solutions. But there hasn't been that money in the private markets looking to build these private companies. Some of these companies that have gone public too soon, there may be a bit of a bubble in the public market. But I think there's a, a real void in the private market right now for capital there. When I talked about the impact and what is driving this, I left out a major impact. I, I think everything I pointed to, we would have seen without President Biden. But I think President Biden has a big impact. I mean, it just signals that the U.S. is back. Climate diplomacy is going to be very important. He's put together an incredible team in terms of the talent he's amassed. And when you look at his program and what the government can do, even without Congress acting and you know, forgetting about what's even there with Congress in terms of their procurement, in terms of their policy. And I, I think uh, that, that uh, Secretary Yellen has got a very big opportunity, and I think she's going to make a big difference because she's put together a climate hub at Treasury, which is going to be a center of excellence focused on uh, climate finance. And there's an awful lot that can be done there in terms of driving disclosures and the kinds of disclosures that, you're, that regulators are, are, are going to need to make, whether it's in the SEC or other regulators. You're going to see climate stress tests, looking at risk in, in, in the financial system. I think there's an awful lot she can do in terms of promoting a new finance mechanisms and financing mechanisms by the financial institutions. Because I think there's room, there's been a lot of innovation and there's going to be more innovation and we need more innovation. I think having financial institutions focus on the impact of their investing and their lending, both in terms of the negative impact and the positive impact. And then having Janet Yellen on the global stage, you know, as we work with China co-chairing the Green Finance Working Group at the G20 and working to develop standards globally. Treasury's got a very big role to play and you couldn't have a better leader there to focus on that issue. You mentioned China. You, you put it in the Washington Post a few weeks ago saying China is ground zero when it comes to climate change. Over 30% of global emissions occur in China. You know more about China than anyone else I know. How do you see the role of China? Uh, are we in a good trajectory? Obviously, the commentary coming from President Xi has sounded very positive. Is this real? Or are we on a good trajectory with China, especially vis-a-vis -vis our relationship? Well, there's a lot in there. It's a very, very fraught, difficult relationship. So if we talk about the relationship, it's by far the most uh, important bilateral relationship in the world that right now it's in a very bad place. I, I think uh, competition is going to define this relationship for the foreseeable future. And we're going to compete across many areas. We're going to compete, whether it's economic areas, whether it's 
trade, whether it's ideology, whether it's a national security. So there's going to be big competition with China. But I think one area where we clearly, where there's going to be competition, but there's got to be cooperation because it's in both of our nation's interests and it's in the world's interest, is climate change. And I think it was very positive when John Kerry made the visit to Shanghai. And the statement, the joint statement that he signed was, I think, important. And it's the first one I can remember in well over a year. So I think that's a sign. The fact that President Xi participated in the event that that President Biden put together, I think, was very significant. But to, to, to really get to the heart of your question, I said China was ground zero in the fight to combat climate change and that it, it's about a third of the climate emissions come from China. And so their practices in China to deal with their massive environmental issues and carbon emissions and to strengthen their practices outside of China are, are going to be the major determinant on whether we meet this challenge. And I don't care how much progress we make every place else. If China doesn't accelerate what they're doing, the outcomes are, are going to be very severe. So there's a real incentive for us to work together. And I am very hopeful that there are a good number of ways in which we can work together. And Hank, uh, once you get outside of Beijing, you obviously talk to industry leaders and you talk to those entrepreneurs and those who are environmentalists, and there is a growing environmental movement in China. What do you hear from the industrialists? Do they, do they adhere to what President Xi wants to do? And are they ready to make the transition? And what about a budding environmental movement, a young generation in China that wants the same things that everyone else wants? So, Tim, first of all, there is a strong environmental movement in China, very strong. And a matter of fact, what China has done in making progress and cleaning up its environment, the tangible signs of pollutants, dirty air, dirty water, soil, those sorts of things. There's been amazing progress made on that. And the people are demanding it. I don't think that uh, the Communist Party would survive if, if President Xi didn't make that a top priority. And he's made it a top priority and there's big, big progress. Now, in terms of climate change, which isn't quite as visible, I think that you know the, what China does here, I, I've outlined the challenge, but it's also the big hope, right? Because what uh, she has said is that their emissions will peak in, in uh, 2030, which means they're gonna keep going up between now and 2030. And, and then he, he's going to get to net zero by 2060. There's a lot of work required to do that, but that's not moving quickly enough. And, and so, you know, is there support in the country for that among industrialists? I, I believe there is. And I, I think people are taking these commitments very, very seriously. But when you look at the massive, sprawling, inefficient industrial complex and, and the huge quantities of cement and steel and petrochemicals, just making a voluntary pledge doesn't do it, right? It doesn't do it for any of us. You mentioned Paris and how important that was, President Biden rejoining Paris. Sure, that's huge. 
But let me tell you, we're not on track to meet any of these voluntary targets. We're, we're just not on track to meet them. It, even if we did, the world would overheat. So I think we're going to need different mechanisms. And, and, and China and the U.S. have got to help create a mechanism that focuses on the major economies, deals very in a very straightforward way about the incentive that we currently have to free ride and comes up with some real incentives to curb carbon emission. You know, I, I would say in China, one of the things that I think has the chance of having the biggest impact is their national carbon market. Now, they've been slow to get it off the ground, but it's going to focus initially on the energy sector. And that's very big. That's 40% of emissions in China. It's over 2,000 companies. When that gets going, that will be, you know, twice as big as the markets in Europe, 10 times bigger than in the U.S. And I say, so how that's implemented and then how that's rolled out, that could be a game changer. And so that's an area where we should be working with China, right? It can make a big difference. And then if you look at what's happening in the emerging markets, particularly the Belt and Road countries here, you know, they're responsible for 28% of global emissions today. But if there's no change made in seven years, they'll be emitting more carbon than China. And by uh, 2050, it'll be two thirds of the emissions. So again, I think an important role the U.S. can play in working with China to help them do the things they need to do to reduce carbon emissions on the Belt and Road. And I think whether it's in China or whether it's outside of China, I think the transition away from coal is going to be a very important one. You know, working with them to invest in the game-changing technologies we're going to need to, to develop to deal with some of the more difficult uh, climate change uh, challenges. Hank, you're absolutely right. I'm a big fan of the uh, Bill Gates book, and I hawk it whenever I'm on, where he talks about uh, the green premium and lowering the green premium through scale. Obviously, any joint projects between the U.S. and China would bring down uh, the cost of those technologies as we scale. You mentioned that that's an opportunity for cooperation. Uh, you know the politics in Washington about as well as anyone. Uh, China is not seen as someone that uh, this city wants to cooperate with. How can we overcome the politics to actually achieve uh, cooperation in terms of looking at some of these technologies, which would benefit both of our countries? Well, uh, Tim, th th that's a real challenge because one thing that unites Democrats and Republicans is yeah, a concern about China. And so, and, and viewing China as a threat. But I will tell you that unless we are able to define a relationship where we compete, but we minimize unnecessary confrontation and we look to maximize healthy competition and define where we're going to compete and how and where we're going to cooperate, this world is going to be a very, very tough place. And business needs to play a role there because I think very often there's a danger that when we look at the China threat, which is very real and very understandable that people look at it, the steps we take in dealing with that threat hurt us more than they hurt China, right? And so 
we're going to have plenty of decoupling. We're going to need decoupling with high technologies to protect our national security. But if we force too much decoupling, what we're going to do is isolate ourselves, not isolate China. Now let's talk about climate. We can't view climate change on a standalone basis. We can't give China a free ride on other economic issues because they happen to do things that we like on climate. Climate needs to be looked at on a standalone basis. And there are things that can be done to benefit both countries. Like for instance, one of the things I would start with and something that you and I talked about back in the day, right? was eliminating tariffs on environmental goods and services. There's a big market in China. You know, it's a multi-trillion dollar market to continue to clean up the environment. There's no good rationale for putting a tariff on environmental goods and services. We have important clean technologies that we can bring to China and, uh, and roll those out. We need to be smart about looking at our export controls because you know, only if we can jointly provide incentives to build climate solving companies and to roll out technologies quickly and in scale in China, are we gonna make the progress we, we need? But I think we also need to work to, to make sure that when we're looking at the global environment, we have standards that are fair, okay? And that the US needs to play a role right along with, uh, with China and other countries in setting standards for climate technologies. And, and I think it's standards on carbon markets. I agree with you on carbon markets. I think it's an enormous opportunity. The Chinese market will be huge. We're actually working on scaling voluntary carbon offsets, which we hope to roll out in the next couple of months. I believe there's an enormous market-based solution to climate. Moving beyond China, are there other countries where you're spending time and attention where you think there's enormous opportunity, both in terms of policy, where we could see progress being made in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, or in terms of investment, because you think it's a great place to put capital? Well, the TPG Rise Climate Fund is going to be global. So we will raise money from all around the world, whether it's Japan, China, the Middle East, Europe, Canada, the U.S., and there are going to be climate uh, solutions that are important all over the world. You know, India and China are the two biggest emitters. And the reason I focus so much on China is I believe that the green financing models, you know, this is an area where my institute, the Paulson Institute, worked with the Chinese in developing green investing principles for the Belt and Road and for, for the emerging markets, because I really do think that in many of these countries where it's going to be so important that they have clean technologies to roll out, they don't even have municipal finance markets. And so the kinds of financing mechanisms developed in China are going to be very important. And the standards that, uh, that are developed around the carbon markets are going to be very important. But yeah, one area of the world, Tim, where I spent also, a lot of the time is Latin America. And there, COVID has hit Latin America very, very hard. It, it's devastated it economically, and the health uh, devastation is, is just huge. And it's going to take a lot of relief and stimulus to, to get those economies going. So I, they're focused to a large extent on 
uh, preservation of uh, natural capital and biodiversity and the destruction of the Amazon. And the Amazon is very near a tipping point. Given the way the weather patterns work and the rain patterns work, it wouldn't take a lot more to have, you know, the Amazon to start dry out. And it would be the, the whole hydrological cycle would be disrupted. Right now, the Amazon is a big carbon sink and destroying it releases a lot of carbon. I, I really do think that there's a lot that can be done in terms of green finance. I think there's plenty of money that will come to help build back these economies and build them back the right way with some good green principles. If we go the other way, I think that we won't see the kinds of investment we need. So that area is one where I'm spending a lot of time. And I see the administration. I see John Kerry focusing also you know, and doing it in a, in a quiet, responsible way, focused on the Amazon. Part of our voluntary carbon markets initiative, we do see natural carbon sinks as a real solution. There's a, you know, a whole host of corporations that are looking to offset their emissions using nature-based solutions. So I think there's interest in capital issues. We've got to build the right market. But are, are the policymakers on the ground in many of these countries, in Brazil and others, is there an interest in allowing these markets to work? Do they want to see reforestation? Yeah, it's hard to have a generalization, right? So a lot of the work that I've been doing has been working with Ivan Duque, you know, who you remember was a finance minister when I was treasury secretary. He's now president of Colombia, and he has a big focus on this. And so he assembled the nine heads of state whose, whose countries can control the Amazon and uh, in something called the Letitia Pact. And my institute is working with a number of NGOs and working with the Duque on financing principles and financing mechanisms. So uh, Colombia is a leader. There are some of these nations where they're essentially failed states, right? Look at Venezuela and Bolivia, right? Ecuador is close to a failed state. Brazil dwarfs all the other countries with regard to the Amazon. The national government is pretty dysfunctional, but there is a, you know, at least the executive branch. But you have real advocates in Congress, and there's a real opportunity to do work at the state level, because nine of the Brazilian states hold a big part of the Amazon. Building on your comment, there, there are a couple of groups, one called Moss Earth, that right now are, are looking to preserve the swaths in, in Amazonas and, and elsewhere by selling carbon offsets, carbon credits, and developing techniques to do that. I think you mentioned biodiversity. The Paulson Institute has been a real leader in focusing on biodiversity. How did you make the transition from, from being climate-focused to biodiversity? I can see it's a, a natural jump, you know, for maybe some of those who are not as well-informed as you are. What, what do you mean by biodiversity? So here's how I look at this, Tim. What, what is the COVID pandemic shown, okay? It is really shown and shown a light on our collective failure to avoid and deal with a very predictable global disaster, which is the pandemic. And I look at us sleepwalking into another global disaster because there's been an alarming, an alarming 
destruction of biodiversity. We're seeing the extinction of species at a thousand times the natural rate. And if we continue at this level, we will lose half the species uh, on Earth by the middle of the century. And so this is huge, and it's got all kinds of implications. Listen, we've seen, again, a global initiatives, UN voluntary initiatives pointing to the problem, but the problem is accelerating. And the reason is we don't place an economic value on nature. Nature, natural services are big contributors to our economic well-being. If you look at pollinators, you know, bees, moths, all kinds of insects, there's at least, uh, you know, half a trillion dollars of value there. Forests are multi-trillions of dollars of value. And because it's difficult to put an economic value on them, we haven't. So politicians treat them as a free good, that they place a value of zero on them. My institute, working with the Nature Conservancy and and some others, did a big study on natural capital. And I think we broke some new grounds in explaining why you had to put an economic value on natural capital, and then tracking the uh, flows uh, and investment flows into natural capital and looking at all of the different policies and financing mechanisms that were out there and assessing them. And we broke, I think, some new ground there. But my takeaways from that are that there's very positive things out there that uh, make a difference. But the uh, most important thing you can do is preserve the natural capital we now have and not destroy it. That is very important. And it it doesn't take new money. Uh, The biggest thing you can do is change our agricultural subsidies. You don't have to eliminate them because clearly people want to incentivize production. But we have very flawed policies and we are incentivizing the wrong practices. And so restructuring those, I think some of the things that can be done with regard to financial markets, focusing on a better understanding how investing in projects that harm the environment, you know, how harmful that is. And there, there's, no, there's no penalty for doing that. And there's no incentive for doing things that preserve nature. So I think doing those things, I think one thing we need to be careful of in terms of this climate revolution that's going on, we need to accelerate the electrification. This is an era of electrification. But as we roll out wind and you know renewables, and particularly wind, and all this infrastructure, we need to be very conscious of what's happening to the natural capital. I think how that stuff is cited makes a big, big difference. What's going on with natural capital? We, we don't begin to know as much about that as we know about climate. Climate science is well ahead of natural capital. But the two go together. Why are we having you know these forests? fires and all these events. You know, look at the insect disease in the forest uh, brought about by climate change. Why are we getting pandemics? People need to understand zoonotics. Nature and uh, mankind living closer together and being forced together. So again, a lot to focus on there in, in terms of biodiversity and biodiversity finance. You know, Hank, you mentioned bees. The last time pre-pandemic, I was in Istanbul meeting with our Turkish members. The lunchtime discussion turned on bees and pollination. And I came back to my colleagues here and I said, you know, we really need to focus on bees. And I think they thought I was off my rocker. But 
Anyway, I'm glad to hear someone else is focused on bees and pollination. Yeah, there's a whole set of asset classes. And one thing I want to talk about is watersheds, right? I've done a lot of work through the Nature Conservancy and others in, in Latin America. But watersheds, and a classic example, right in New York City, a number of years ago, they made a, a very wise decision. Rather than building the gray infrastructure and spending $7.5 billion on a water treatment facility, they spent $1.5 billion in restoring a watershed in the Catskills and investing in nature. Thank you. You know, it's just such an honor to have you here with us. You've been a real leader your entire career on these important issues. We at the IF are certainly focused on them. Our industry is focused on them. I hope we can get you back again sometime as we continue our journey to look for pragmatic solutions. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to IF's All About the Green podcast. This has been a great conversation. We thank our guests for another engaging dialogue on the implications of climate change in the financial services industry and the broader economy. For more episodes of All About the Green, please visit us at IIF.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 